Well, I've looked forward to uh, coming to this time in the book of Acts, to this, to this message. I bet I've anticipated, you need one? There's a glare. I don't know what we can do about it. It is bright, isn't it? Should we close that baptistry? Would that help? Okay, do that for us, will you? Tracy, I'm sorry to interrupt the tremendous spirit you've helped us have here, but I, I don't know how to go about getting this. Does that help? Good, great. Thanks, Larry. We all face a series of impossible situations every day. And if we're not careful, we'll view these impossible situations from the external and we'll try to handle them ourselves. And that leads to failure every time. You and I usually look on the outward and, and we evaluate a, a circumstance or a situation. We deal with a crisis from the external. And this is our mind. How am, I going to, how am I going to overcome this? How am I going to figure this out? How am I going to solve this situation? And we get together all of the logical conclusions and answers we can put together, and we get after it. And we fail every time. Now, with your hand, uh, little finger there, in the 12th chapter of the book of Acts, I want you to just kind of flip the pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to show you a verse of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, don't lose the place of Acts 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. Now, I want you to stop right there. Because that is... He, we can put our name there. Gerald Tidwell, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. Because that's just, as, just exactly what you and I do every day as we confront these little series of impossibilities that meet us in the road that confront us every day. Now, look back up at verses 3 and 4 of this same chapter. And I want you to underscore, if you have a pencil you can do it, underscore in the flesh, verse 3, that phrase, in the flesh, and the phrase according to the flesh, and then verse 4, of the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And, and I want you to know that almost, not exactly, but almost, the phrase of the flesh or according to the flesh or in the flesh and the word outwardly 
are about the same. They're almost the same. I mean, they're so close to the same that I'm just going to take the freedom to say they are the same. That'd be all right, won't it? You won't argue with it. Okay, so that, so that we could say, for though we walk outwardly, uh, we do not war outwardly, for the weapons of our warfare are not outwardly weapons, external weapons. For, for you see, our battles every day, in these series of impossibilities, our battles are, are deeper than the flesh. Our, our circumstances that we confront in life are, are deeper, are greater than um, fleshly circumstances. First little church I pastored, I, um, I, was, I, I started a, pre, uh, a jail ministry over in, the, over in the little county seat town. And every Monday night, some of the guys in our church went over to this jail and uh, uh, did a service there, preached and taught uh, the Sunday school lesson. Uh, to these guys, captive audience, and uh, there was this uh, fellow in this in this jail who was a trustee. His name was George. He was an alcoholic. I mean, he'd drink anything, literally. Uh, if if I told you some of the things he had drunk, you wouldn't believe me. He was just unbelievable. And one night after I finished the Sunday school lesson, and uh, it was, we were just kind of sitting around there visiting with the guys, he said, I have a question I'd like to ask you from the Bible. I thought, oh no, he's going to give me, he's going to want me to identify the beast in Revelation, you know. And I said, well, okay, you know, lay it on me. He said, well, over there in the book of Hebrews, it says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And he just quoted that verse of Scripture. But against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. He said, what is that talking about? And I said, I, I've got the answer. Boy, I just heaved a sigh of relief. And uh, I said, I know the answer to that. I, I said, our enemies today, that the, the encounters of life that get us down are not flesh and blood, or we could get them by the throat and defeat them. It's, our, our enemies are much greater than that. We need weapons, he said. We, we need weapons that are greater uh, than, than fleshly outward weapons because our battles are deeper than that. We need weapons for these non-flesh conflicts. We need more than human logic and human strength to encounter the, uh, uh, the impossibilities that we meet every day. And so he says, our weapons are mighty unto God. Our weapons are, are, are powerful unto God. We have weapons for the non-flesh enemy. Now I want you to keep that in mind as you turn back to chapter 12. Because we're going to deal tonight with these, these walls that you know, surround us, these bars, these gates, these impossibilities, these things that defeat us, these things that shut us in, whatever they are. And you can fill in the blanks tonight. Because you and I experience every day those things that get us down. They defeat us. They shut us in. They bar us in. Bar us in. Gates and walls and bars and prisons. Look at that in chapter 12. Verse 1. Now about that time, you're following in your little blue sheet. I've been here three years and uh, 
we're working on these. We, you know, it just don't let it get old. I want you to work just like it's the first time you've ever seen it. About that time, about what time? About the time of the intense persecution of the church. For there had begun a revival in the land, and we've already seen that. There is a tremendous moving of the Spirit of God upon His church. And Pentecost has already happened, and the church is exploding across Asia Minor. But there was this backwash of murder and suffering and intense persecution. So that what we're going to see tonight is something that happens in the worst possible times of one's life. Time of intense persecution and murder and suffering. About that time, Herod the king, which Herod? You ever ask yourself that? For the word, the name, the title Herod is what it is, a title. It's like president. Um, the um, first century Palestine was a Roman world. And this Roman world was ruled by a Roman Caesar. I want you to um, uh, envision tonight, just dawned on me, I was going to bring an umbrella in here and I forgot to. But if you can just imagine tonight, visualize this umbrella here, that little spoke that's sticking out above the, over the, at the top of that umbrella, that's the Caesar, and he rules over this Roman world. And let one of those little spokes in that umbrella represent Palestine, the Jewish nation. And this Jewish nation was ruled over by a Herod. And this Herod was a puppet king of the Caesar. He was a governor, so to speak, of this one province, of this one particular spoke under the great umbrella of the Roman Empire. Now the Caesar during this time of chapter 12 was Claudius, and he allowed this puppet government to take place in the, in the Jewish world, in the Jewish economy, and the, and the nation of Palestine was ruled by Agrippa I, Agrippa. He was the man who said to, Saul, to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And we sing that song, Almost Persuaded, and refer to Agrippa because it sounds like he was saying, I'm almost a Christian. He said it in mockery and derision. In other words, he said, Do you think with that little persuasion that you can make me a Christian? Now these Herods that ruled over the, the various provinces of the Roman Empire were jealous and heady, cruel pirates. And Josephus said of Agrippa that he was vain and unscrupulous. He was obsessed with power. And he observed the rules and the rights of the Jews, but he was zealous for popularity, and so he straddled the fence. He balanced the tremendous... Uh, struggle between the Romans and the Jews as best he could. And he loved to be popular. He loved, he, he was, he was heady for that power. And so he left, the Romans have their arenas to murder the Jews and so he, I mean, to murder the Christians and so he satisfied both the Romans and the Jews alike. That was the kind of man that was in control at this time. Now verse 3 says that he or verse 2, that he had put James, the brother of John, to death with a sword. James is not the brother of Jesus who wrote the epistle, not that James. Peter, James, and John, you know those three that had, that, that had the ear of Jesus, of that inner circle, that's the James, and he put him to death. And verse 3 says that he arrested Peter, and so that looking at life from the outward, 
perspective breeds panic and unrest, and there must have been a great deal of panic and unrest if men were looking at the situation now from an outward perspective. They were looking, if they were looking externally, times were difficult. And it says, Now it was during the days of unleavened bread... Now, sometimes I think that when we read the Scripture that, you know, that, that the Scriptures are kind of put together, you know, like this. Here, here's a Scripture and here's a thought and it's kind of, you know, jam these things in together between the Scriptures like putty, you know, just kind of give them support. You know, like these fill-ins you read in the, in, the, in the newspaper where they run out of the article before they run out of space so they just cram this little statement in. It makes absolutely no sense at all. That's a fill-in. Some of us, I think, read the Bible like that. So when we come to this statement of unleavened bread, we think, well, what does that have to do? It has a lot to do with it. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread took place on right immediately after the Passover. Now watch this. The Passover took place on the 14th of April of, of Nisan, and they celebrated the Feast of Escape from Egypt. And for one whole week, they, they went through seven days of unleavened bread. And there was no yeast in the house because yeast was symbolical of sin. And so everything they ate, all the bread they ate was flat. All the pancakes and all the uh, chocolate fudge cake had no yeast. It was flat. Everything was hard for those days. And in the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there could be no trial or no execution. That was what was saving Peter's life. Now watch this. He didn't put that in there just for filler. He wanted us to know that Simon Peter was on the brink of death. And if it hadn't been for the fact that this man Agrippa was going to keep these Jews happy over here so he could maintain his popularity, he would have already killed him. And so Peter was just waiting for the day of unleavened breath to end, unleavened bread to end, and he would lose his breath. He would die. It was just that close to death for this man. You talk about external impossibilities. You're talking about, you're looking at the difficult time in a man's life. I look at verse 4, and we'll just look at the outline. He's in prison. This is the third time Peter's been in prison. I guess when they brought him in, they didn't even, um, they didn't even book him. They didn't even fingerprint him. I mean, he'd been there so much, they just said, uh, here's Peter, oh, and there's his cell. What he been there? And they just put him over in his cell. He'd been there twice already. And, and verse 4 says that, that the uh, official set... Four guards to watch him. And that's a pretty unusual thing, because four squads to watch him, because normally they just set one squad to, to guard a man in prison. And there were, one squad was made up of four men. And these men would rotate every three hours as they would uh, uh, stand guard over these prisoners, sometimes even chained to them. But Herod understood and knew that this man Peter was different and he didn't want him to escape. And he had been let out of jail. We've already read that as we follow through the book of Acts in a spooky manner. And so he put him under four squads to watch him. There were four men watching him around the clock. You talk about an impossibility. 
And verses 5 and 6 say that this man was doomed because he had already killed James. And on the very night of, that he planned to put Peter to death and bring him to the people. That's where we are in this drama. Now let me say parenthetically, three things we're going to see from verses 5 and 6. So Peter was kept in prison... But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the priest. Now, three things. One is that Peter's sound asleep. Um, I'd like to think that Simon Peter um, uh, just knew that the Lord was going to deliver him, so he went to sleep to wait on him. But I think probably he had already given up the fact that he was going to die, that death was imminent. And so he knew that he could glorify God in death as well as life, and so he just laid down and went to sleep. The second thing that was going on was that prayer... Now here was one of the brothers in the church who was having, who was in prison and, and was awaiting execution. And the church was on its knees night and day before God, groaning on his behalf. That's where the church needs to be. I mean, it's difficult to get us uh, here on Wednesday night for 15 minutes. This church was on its knees day and night, fervently praying for this man. And the third thing that is apparent from this text is that while Peter was sleeping and the church was praying, God was at work. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible, for He can do what no other can do. Now look at the intervention. Verses seven through eleven. Now, I don't want you to get. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want you to get so religious that you can't catch the humor that's in this passage. It is absolutely hilarious. Look at verse seven. I'm just going to read all the way through verse eleven, and we'll look at it. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a light shone in the sh and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and roused him. He shakes him and he says, "Get up quickly," and his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was still asleep and was dreaming. And when they passed the first and second guard, I could just see that angel, you know, they just kind of went on by. When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. The first evidence of an automatic door. It opened by itself, and they went out and, 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 along on, uh, and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Lord, I know for sure, now I know for sure, that the Lord has sent forth His angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now, I want you to come back with me to that scene. Um, 
I have a hard time um, getting to sleep, but when I get to sleep, for about the first couple of hours, I am dead. I, I don't go to sleep, I die. I just flat out die. And then I wake up for about three hours, not able to go back to sleep again. So if you wake me up, well, right after I've gone to sleep, don't be surprised at anything I say because I'll just talk. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, Todd will come in uh, from a ball game or something and, and he'll come in and talk to me and I'll just talk. Margaret says that I just answer and we just have this marvelous conversation and I don't remember a thing. I, I, don't, I don't even realize that it happened. I'll wake up about 3 o'clock in the morning and I'll shake Margaret and say, is Todd coming in? And well, you talk to him, you know. And I can remember when I was a, a little boy, my parents were always telling me and I'd get up in the middle of the night and roam around all over the house and say some of the goofiest things and never remember it. So here was this old, this guy had just gotten to sleep and, he, and this light came on in the cell. After all, he had to get his sandals, had to find them in the dark. And his angel is, is trying to get him up, you know, wake him up, and he's just sound asleep, can't wake up, and when he does, he's stumbling around there, chains fall off. And, um, and he's, you know, stumbling around, kind of feeling his ray around in the dark and, and, and makes it out past the first and the second guard to this big gate that's there bound. Now, how are they going to get past that? As they walk up to it, it just opens up, and he goes out into the street, and the door slams, the gate slams, and the angel leaves, and the Bible says Peter wakes up. Now, can you imagine what he thought when he woke up and realized where he was? He, he looked around, and the chains were gone, and, and he was on the outside of the cell, you know. Wham, bang, he was outside, woke up. There he was. You know what he said? He said, God has delivered me. There's not a lock in your life, friend. Now get serious with me. There's not a lock in your life that God cannot pick. And I'm not even sure how much cooperation he needs from us to do it. There's not an impossibility that God cannot handle. There's not a door that God cannot open. There's not a cell that God cannot deliver you out of. There's not a prison that God cannot free you from. There's not a lock that God cannot pick. Elizabeth Barrett Browning once said, God answers sharp and sudden some of our prayers and thrust the thing we prayed for in our face. I was disappointed when I went to William Barclay's translate, uh, uh, commentary on this passage, and this is what he said. He said, What we see here may or may not be a miracle. It may just be the story of a thrilling escape. And, and I turned over to that uh, 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 miracle over there of, uh, of Jesus where he told the disciples to cast their nets on the other side of the boat, and they brought in this great uh, load of fish, William Barclay says. Jesus, with his keen eye, probably just saw a school of fish on the other side, and it seemed like a miracle. Then he concluded, The world is full of miracles for the eyes to see. I'm telling you, the world is full of miracles that the eye cannot see. 
Are you facing some impossibility tonight? Are you confronting something you feel that is just beyond anything that you're capable of doing? Congratulations. Good for you. God is just getting ready to do His work. Now look at verse 12 with me and we'll hurry to finish. You know, sometimes taking yes for an answer to prayer is harder than taking no. And when he realized this, he went straight to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where, the, where many were gathered together and were praying. must have been a big house. She must have been somewhat wealthy because it was a house big enough for a large group to get in. And besides, there was a gate on the outside of it. And that's pretty unusual for a common peasant-type person. What a heritage. Uh, what a heritage this mother left for Mark, her son, for as it notes her in the Scripture, it says that her house became a house of prayer. Folks, the greatest heritage you can leave your children, your youth, is that it is known that your place is a place where young people and adults can gather and pray. And they were there praying together. And here's old Peter outside the gate out there, and he's knocking on the door of the gate. And the servant girl named Rhoda means Rose. So old Rose came to answer. Everybody's up in this room praying. Now Rose has gone for a uh, drink of water or something else. Little girl. And she hears this knock out there at the gate, and she goes and, and listens to the knock, and he's out there calling this man who has been just delivered. And when she recognizes Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate. That's happened to all of us. She just got so excited. She ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. Shh, be quiet, they said. you out of your mind. The word, is, the word there, out of your mind, is the same word we get the word maniac from. You're a maniac, you know. Get quiet, you know. Uh, don't, don't, don't come to me with the answer. I'm, I'm coming with a request, you know. Here's John over here praying, Lord, we, we want to pray for our brother Simon Peter. And she's out there saying, Simon Peter's out at the gate. You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. In your New American Standard, it refers you to the 18th chapter of Matthew probably. It talks there in the 18th chapter about guardian angels, plural. I'm convinced that what they thought was at the gate was his death angel. Because in Old Testament, they believed that when a person died, a death angel came and took them back to heaven. I think they thought Peter's already dead and that's his death angel out there. But Peter continued knocking and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were like, and like great men of faith, they said, I can't believe it. It couldn't be possible. Sometimes taking an answer... Yes for an answer is harder than taking no. And you know what Peter did? He gave his testimony. Just like my brother on the back row tonight. He gave his testimony. He said just what God had done in his life. Um, do you have a fresh testimony? God, any, has God answered any prayers in your life lately? Why, why is it so difficult at a time when we, have, when we ask for, for, for testimony? Why is, it, why is it that nobody stands? Why, why is it that a total stranger 
from California has to come in and give a testimony when there are literally hundreds of people here. Is it because God has not been doing anything in your life lately? I mean, when God is doing something in your life, tell it. Let, it, let somebody know about it. And he just told exactly what happened. And he left. Now there's some lessons from this. I want to give them to you quickly and I'm through. Number one, we are faced daily with a series of impossible situations every day of our life. I mean, tomorrow when you get up, you're going to know that you're faced with a series of impossible situations, situations that cannot be handled with human logic, human strength. Let me say it a different way. That's not really the best way to say that. You and I are faced daily with a series of great opportunities that are disguised as impossibilities. Would you start thinking like that? Today I'm faced with some great opportunities that are disguised as impossibilities. The second lesson, if there is to be a solution, if there is to be a solution to these impossibilities, disguised impossibilities, disguised opportunities, if there's to be a solution, it will take divine intervention. It will take divine intervention. What a great day it will be when we see every impossibility as an opportunity for God to work a miracle. You know what you know what that means? That means that I will rejoice when the impossibility confronts me. Because now God will have an opportunity to perform a miracle. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Father, this very day we confront impossible situations. This church confronts impossibilities. Thirty-seven young people are headed out for the West Coast. And they're going to be confronted with the responsibility of planting the gospel in virgin soil in a place where the gospel is not well received. That's an impossibility. We don't have the resources for that, Father. We don't have the money to do that. That's an impossibility. We're confronting so many things, Father, in our church now that that are so that have such have the word impossibility written across them. Can't do it. We can't do it. The walls are big and the gates are closed. The guard is set. Outwardly, 
there's fear in each of us as we think about them. Situations at home, situations at work, situations in relationships. God intervene. Let us take our hands off of that. Let us stop working with fleshly weapons, working according to the outward. Oh God, let us remove our hands, our effort, so that you can take over. Oh Lord, do a miracle in us. In our place tonight, in this church, I pray it in Jesus' name. Now the invitations are these tonight. The invitation, the first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. We invite you to do that. It's not possible for you to save yourself. That's an impossibility. It's impossible for you to forgive your sin. You haven't sinned. You've sinned against God. He must forgive. The invitation for you tonight is to come and trust Jesus and Jesus only. The second invitation tonight is for you to come and give your life to the church and to ministry and service. Perhaps to join the church or to rededicate your life and giving a part of that life that you've held back to God. We invite you to come. We, we, we pray for you to come. We've prayed for this moment this week. Now let God have his way in your heart and life. Would you, while we stand and sing, we invite you to come.